Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15? John chapter 15, while you're turning there, I want to give a review of the past couple of weeks. We've seen in John 15 that we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to abide in Jesus. What it means to abide is to remain, to stay faithful to, to rely on. And we abide in Jesus Christ as a branch abides in a vine. And as that branch abides in that vine, it bears fruit. We as believers are called to bear fruit in this life, in this world. We're called to bear fruit. Fruit of internal, but also external. So we have fruit that we are called to produce, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, the working of God, us relying on Jesus Christ, that there is internal fruit that's produced, fruit of the Spirit. For example, I I know when I came to Christ, when I turned my life over, I understood my sin before God. I understood my brokenness and that I was in need of a Savior, and I came to God, and I understood that, and I repented of those things and trusted in Jesus Christ that there were some things in my life, there were some sin issues in my life that immediately the Lord took away from me. And those were internal fruits. Now, there's still internal fruits that he's working with me in today, but also as we abide in Christ, we're called to produce external fruit. That we are called to evangelize and discipleship and to lead others, to share with others the good news of Jesus Christ. So I was working through this passage in John 15. One of the encouraging things that I saw was God the Father as the gardener. And that he is cultivating our life. He is pruning branches from our life that are not bearing fruit. And so if there's a sin issue in your life as there's sin issues in my life that is just not going away. It's something you struggle with. Understand and have hope that the Lord is dealing with that. He's coming alongside, and he's not going to allow his children to remain in those sins forever. One day, when we're taken, we're no longer going to have to struggle with these sins. But even here in this world, in the present, he's removing these things. I know he's removing areas of my life. Some, as I mentioned, were immediate when I first came to Christ. I know an area of my life that he immediately took away, and it's not this way with every person. But I know for me, when I first came to Christ, my foul language, what I used to say and what used to come out of my mouth, that was something that the Lord immediately took out of my life. And it was just an instantaneous change that occurred as I trusted in Jesus Christ. But there are many other areas which I wish would have just instantaneously changed as well, right, which... I'm sure some of you, and I know my wife, can attest to those other areas. And those are areas, as I study God's Word and I'm spending time in connect groups and amongst other believers in Christ, I see more areas in my life that as I spend time with believers, I see these areas come forth of selfishness or pride. Or when I don't see those areas, you, the church, are able to help me see those areas. That's what we've been called as a church together to do. But as we look in John 15, we see this picture of the Lord as our vine dresser, our gardener, who's pruning us to produce more fruit. We've seen how trials, circumstances, difficulties, even droughts, spiritual dryness in our life are for the purpose of growing us, deepening our roots in Jesus Christ. We saw last week that we're no longer apprehended by sin, that we're no longer controlled by our sin, but we've been appointed By God the Father, we've been appointed to go and bear fruit, and it will be fruit that remains. 
My sermon this morning is really comprised of two parts put together to be one, but the title for my first portion of the sermon here is A Hatred to be Expected. A Hatred to be Expected. Our passage is John chapter 15, verses 18 through 25, and we'll see why this is named A Hatred to be Expected. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they will have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done the works among them that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So this is a hatred to be expected. Jesus goes on in this passage and he shares with us how persecution will come, where it will come from, and why it's going to come. The first thing we need to understand is the world's hatred and the world's disgust for Christians is not a sociological issue. You just heard this morning how our church gathered thousands of pounds of food to give away to the community for those in need. And we do that every other week. We give food away. And that's just one of other things our church does. The Christian helps clothe the naked. We feed the hungry. We come along and adopt the orphan. We do those things, and it's not for those issues why the world hates us. No, it is for theological reasons the world cannot tolerate Christians. The hatred of the world. In verse 18, it says, if the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it first hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you, but you're not of the world. You've been taken out of the world by God the Father. It leads us to our first point, and it's this. We are persecuted by the world because we have been adopted by the Father. So as a Christian, you're not hated because of what you do. You're hated because of who you are, and you are His. That's ultimately why Jesus is saying it. It's not because of what we do or don't do. It's actually that they hate him and we're his. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. This is Jesus alluding to a parable that he had already told his disciples. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he gave this parable. We find it in Matthew 21, verse 33 through 46, called the parable of the wicked tenants. This is also a parable of a vineyard, and there's branches and vines and fruit, and people tending to those vineyards. But listen to what it says. It says, There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, killed another, and stoned the other. Again, he sent more servants, more than the first, and they did the same to all of them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. 
This is the heir, they said to themselves. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus references this in verse 20, 21, when he says, Remember that the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He's referencing that if they're going to persecute me, surely they are going to persecute you as well. The world hates and rejects our theology. We proclaim and teach things such as that we're sinners, countercultural, that man is not self-governing, that God is our authority. This is something the world does not want to hear, that one day every single one of us will be held accountable to a holy, perfect God. This is not something people want to hear, that we're not self-governing. We're under the authority of someone. So it's rejected. This is theology that's rejected. Another one is that Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation. That it's not all paths, it's one path. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. It is theology why the world hates Christians. That we're going to be held to action or accountable, not just for our actions, but also for our words and even our thoughts. Imagine being held accountable for your thought life. That's the realization that we should have of how holy God is, that we've broken His law. And when we understand we've broken a perfect law and God's law and He's perfect and He is just and He cannot overlook those things, then we will be in search for a Savior should lead us to Jesus Christ. Churches that don't preach these things, but instead preach how God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be blessed. God wants you to be prosperous. God wants you to be rich. Many of them are full of people being led astray, and it happens all the time. Just actually this week, I listened to about as much of the sermon I could of a supposed pastor from this area preaching at a church not too far from this area. And in this sermon, at the beginning of it, he was bragging about he's the CEO of almost 50 companies doing millions of dollars in business. And he said, that's just not my life. I want that to be your life, and God does too. He says, I'm living this out, and so does God. I want it in your life. And I want us to see that this is completely contradictory to what we see in the New Testament. Jesus teaches, if they killed me, that you can expect all the riches of this world. Is that what Jesus said? If they persecuted me, they hung me on a cross, they condemned me, and all I did was love people, save people, heal people, give sight to the blind, heal people of disease. I mean, how come the world could not get along with someone like that? I mean, think about all that Jesus did. Fed, clothed, humanitarian efforts, but they crucified him. And then Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. They do these things because they hate who you are. They hate we are of God's family. 
It's a theological issue. And so this was taught, and many churches teach this type of teaching that we can expect riches of the world by following Christ. But that is not what Jesus taught. Leonard Ravenhill, born in 1907, said this, Today it is considered sadistic if you even say that people have to take up their cross and die to self. People say, don't tell young people about the cross. They'll be discouraged. And he replies, are you suggesting that Jesus wasn't smart? If you're going to be my disciple, kiss the world goodbye. You see, when people are born again these days, they don't get separated from the world. Most likely, their pastor is the most worldly guy around. But if you're going to get what Jesus wants to give, if you're going to get the baptism of the Spirit, you have to drink that cup. The cup that's before every believer. That I'm denying self, taking up my cross, and following Him. When we became Christians, it wasn't because we were promised a better life. When we became Christians, we understood the life we have now is much better than what we deserve because I deserve church hell. That's what my life deserves because I've sinned against a holy God, not just once, not just twice. I haven't just lied once. I haven't just lied twice. I've lied a lot of times in my life. I've done a lot of things that are worthy of being condemned, not just to death, but to hell, separation from God. And if you're honest, if we're all honest, that's where all of us are. We're all in this boat together. We've broken God's holy law, but God didn't leave us there. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, who paid your punishment on the cross. Incredible truth that we see here. This is why in Scripture, we're called to love Christ more than the world. If anyone loves the world or the things in the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When we've been loved this way, it should diminish the glitters of this world. In John 15, 22, Jesus said this statement, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. This is not saying that if Jesus wouldn't have came, they would have been sinless. No, we know from Scripture, Romans chapter 5, it says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world. We've all fallen. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. So we're all sinful, but the sin Jesus is talking about here, verse 22, is if he would not have came, and he would not have preached, and he would not have done these miracles, the people who were rejecting him would not be held accountable for that specific sin of rejecting Christ, the Messiah. They had a severe sin, rejection of Christ himself. We could really call this the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is rejection of Christ himself as Savior. We see in John 3.16, right after John 3.16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Immediately after that, it says, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. You and I face no condemnation because we're believers in Jesus Christ. But if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, Scripture says you're condemned already because you've rejected Jesus Christ in your life. My prayer would be for every single one of us to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to turn to Him, that we would not stand in condemnation 
that you're here this morning and you're hearing evidences of God in your life. You're hearing evidences of God of what he wants to do in you. He wants to change you. If we're trusting in Christ, we're no longer condemned because Christ was condemned on our behalf. John 15 Going back to our verses 23 through 25, it says, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty. Something else I want us to see here in John 15, and as you read through the book of John, it's very easy to see that there is a trial going on. There is the life of Jesus. We see Jesus come onto the scene, and then we see him do miracles, and then we see him start to be questioned, and then he starts to be condemned, and then he's put on trial, and then he's put to death. And it's really that span we see in the book of John, the world trying and condemning Jesus Christ. Jesus is really put on trial by the world in the book of John. But I want us to see another picture here. Because in the book of John, there's not just one trial going on. There's actually two trials going on. And this is quite incredible. I I didn't realize the extent of this and that there was such an incredible trial going on from God's behalf to the world in John. I want us to look at some of this language. We see the one trial, the world putting Jesus Christ on trial. But as you read through the book of John, we really see God the Father is judge. Jesus Christ is the accuser and the one who's going to be enacting the judgment against the world, and the world is the one on trial. All of us, the world, stands condemned in the book of John, and we are put on trial, and specifically, even those who crucified Christ are put on trial. And both of these trials throughout the book of John are simultaneously taking place. One trial is done with a mob mentality. It's done behind closed doors. Jesus was declared innocent 11 times at his own trial, yet still he moved forward to be put to death. There were no evidence. There were no witnesses. There was nothing they could bring forward to show where Jesus had sinned and where he had sinned worthy of death. But still, he was killed. But there's another trial going on, and this is God's perfect trial. And there's all the evidences that are laid forth. There's witnesses after witness after witness brought to the stand. There's evidence declared. There's defenses given. And it is a perfect case laid before, undeniable, that the world is guilty of their sin and Jesus Christ is innocent. So there's really two main reasons for this trial. One is to show that the world is condemned. But a second is for all of us today. A second reason for the book of John is for all of us to show us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is.